You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, O oh Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts that we might be able to see Jesus in all of his magnificent magnificence and glory. In his name we pray. Amen. St. Paul has uh, continued his fourth chapter to his letter to the Corinthians, and earlier on he talks about the responsibilities or what the life of a preacher looks like. And he talks about them in two metaphors, the first being to be a servant of Christ, and the second is to be a steward of God's mysteries. But now he changes over to get personal with the Corinthians. He's been building his case all along, but now he finally gets to the, this is what you should listen to, and this is what your life ought to look like part. And in a word, what he's saying to the Corinthians is that they need to develop an eternal perspective. They need to see themselves in their lives in light of eternity, and not just in this fleeting life. The great problem with the Corinthians was that they were all human-centered, not God-centered. And Paul is saying that if you want to know the blessings of God, if you want to know what it looks like to live life to the fullest, then seek first God and His kingdom. Have Jesus Christ as the center of your life, as the anchor of your life, as the foundation of your life. And here in chapter 4, he begins to flesh that out as to what it looks like. And as he said elsewhere, the Christian life looks like foolishness manifested. He engages in sarcasm when he says, already you have all you want. Already you're rich. Without the apostles, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibit us, exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things." The Christian life is upside down to the way that the world looks at it. Don't we all want to be kings? Don't we all want to be strong? Don't we all want to be people of means? Paul says, there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with being a king. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with being strong. But why are you a king? Why are you strong? Why are you wealthy? If you are the end of all of that, if your personal satisfaction is rooted in accomplishing those things, then you've built your life on a foundation of sand. And this is incredibly hard for us, whether you're a Christian or not. Because nobody says, hey, when I grow up, I want to be the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. No guidance counselor, I hope, has ever said to you, you know what, you'd be really great at being the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. You should check that career out. No. 
And Paul isn't setting out in his life to get to that place. It's not as if he says, my ambition is to be the scum of the the world and the refuse of all things. But because I'm a believer and because I've given my life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, by his will and by his design, this is what I've become to the world. But because my life is in Christ, all of that stuff doesn't mean anything to me. But we feel it mightily, as I said. We feel the pressure of the world in our lives to perform and to do these things that the world says ought to be our end goal. And whether you're a Christian or not this morning, you feel acutely the vacuous nature of these goals, the emptiness of it all. Just this week in the New York Times Magazine, Charles Duhigg wrote a column called Wealthy, Successful, and Miserable. And he talked about attending his 15-year reunion from Harvard Business School. And he was shocked by what he had found, but he had a sneaking suspicion it was true. He wrote this, Even amongst my more sanguine classmates, there was a lingering sense of professional disappointment. One classmate described having to invest $5 million a day, which didn't sound too terrible, until he explained that if he put only $4 million to work on Monday, he had to scramble to place six million on Tuesday. And his co-workers were constantly undermining one another in search of the next promotion. It was insanely stressful work done among people he didn't particularly like. He earned about $1.2 million a year and hated going to the office. He said this, I feel like I'm wasting my life. When I die, Is anyone going to care that I earned an extra percentage point of return? My work feels totally meaningless. And that's all of us. Uh, If we're looking for our jobs or anything that this world has to offer to give us any sense of security or purpose, We're going to understand just how acutely meaningless it all is. And I'm listening to this guy here and I'm thinking, I'll take your problems. But if life teaches us anything, it's this. The grass is brown everywhere. (laughs) But you know what? This kind of thinking manifests itself in the church too. I know many of you really love the procession and want to get here in time to make sure you see it and it's a sense of of great triumph. But what does Paul say here? Paul actually uses this kind of language. But God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. What he's talking about are the military processions that happened in ancient Rome when they would defeat a kingdom like Carthage They would bring the spoils of war back as they brought the menorah from the temple of Jerusalem when they conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. In the same way, at the very end of the procession, who was there? The slaves. And at the very end of the line of slaves, who was there? The people who were the big deal. The ruler of Carthage. Whoever it might have been that they defeated. And so it might look like great pomp and circumstances as we come down the aisle, but I want you to know that it's no arbitrary ranking, that it starts with foolish at the front, and it gets even more foolish as it goes to the back. And so you would be right to say, look at that fool at the end of the line. 
And clergy do this all the time. You get clergy together and they start fighting over what the order ought to be. Because they want the position of prominence. They want to be at the tail end of the line. But as I said before, guess who gets at the end of the line? The greatest fool of all. And I pray that they're fools for Christ's sake and nothing else. And yet actually, that lot, acolytes rest well. You're at the front of the line, so you're not that bad. <laughs> but I hope that those who serve God in His church, especially the clergy, understand that ranking. And they never forget it. That we've become a spectacle to the world, not of triumph, but in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and to the people that we've been given to serve. It manifests itself in the world. It manifests itself in the life of the church. And these values even begin to take root in our own families. Uh, my daughter, one of my daughters, second grade, just had a great basketball season. And it's amazing. I, I started watching her team at the beginning of the year, and it was the worst thing I'd ever seen in my life. It was just awful. And I've seen some really bad basketball. But what was great is how great they got as the season went on. It was a lot of fun to watch. And as the season came to the close, Lauren, my wife, and I found out that unbeknownst to us, there were a couple parents who started an elite secret practice squad that engaged the talents of a former college basketball player in order to help these second graders uh, hone their amazing basketball skills. And of course, what's my first response is, well, why weren't we invited? I mean, I mean, who do they think they are? We, we ought to be in this thing. Now, you're thinking the same way I'm thinking eventually. You're like, this is completely and totally ridiculous. It's second grade. But the people that we live around, and even us, often have our minds set on, he on earthly things and not heavenly things. And so we start creating elite private practice squads for second grade basketball or any other way to try to get our kids or ourselves ahead while stepping on the necks of others. And it's easy to buy into that stuff because you think if I don't, then my kids aren't going to get the leg up that I want them to have. And yet Paul says, that's nonsense. It's complete and total nonsense to have your identity wrapped up in something like that. But then it gets incredibly personal. Because like the man who didn't find his job meaningless, so many of us struggle with our own self-worth. We often ask ourselves the question, am I good enough? Do I make any difference? Why am I here? What am I doing? What is my life about? Because it seems to me that I'm not able to live up to the standards of the world, much less the standards that I create for myself. And this is what Paul is talking about, because if we root our lives in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, this will totally destroy us as human beings. And so when your things and your job go poorly, your life falls apart. When things at church go poorly and you don't get the place in line you think you deserve, things fall apart. When you don't get invited to be a part of the secret practice squad, things fall apart. When you're tempted to despair, things fall apart. 
But then Paul tells us, but I want you to know that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And so when everything else can be falling around your ears and your life is falling apart, there is a strong foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the way that the hymn puts it. When Satan tempts me to despair, that inner voice that we hear, that you're not good enough, that you'll never make it. You're not the wife you're supposed to be. You're not the husband you're supposed to be. You're not the dad. You're not the mom. You're not the employee. Whatever it is, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Do you see him? Where do you look when your life is falling apart? Do you engage in the the chatter, the mindless and thoughtless chatter and ambition of the world, or do you look to the Lord Jesus Christ and see Him there and understand that's who you are. That's where your life is. That's what your life is built upon. And the storms can come and the storms can rage and the waters can overflow and the fire can come, and yet your life stands firm. Not because of you, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just looking up and seeing him there. It's also the fact that this power that Paul talks about dwells within you. If you've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and taken hold of him for your salvation, do you not know that his spirit dwells within you? The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is in your body. And how often we neglect that. How often we think little of that as if we don't have that power. And yet he lives within us. God redeems us in order to inhabit us. To come and live within us. And God is continually at work within you and within me. This is the life of Paul. So when the storms come and when the people think that his life is a joke and, and not worth emulation, and they say to him, but Paul, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have to live in the world that I live in. Paul says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which come, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When you look upon him and God's spirit dwells within you, your eyes are open to what's actually important and what's actually real in life. Not the sham of an existence that is peddled to us. And so when we take hold of Jesus, when you have nothing at all, and all you have is Him, it turns out that you're wealthier than the richest person in the world, that you're stronger than the strongest person in the world, 
and that you're held in esteem by the only one who matters. And when Jesus is all you have, he's more than enough. He's more than enough. Friends, I look at my life and I'm convicted because I look at my unbelieving neighbors and I wonder, is my life all that different from theirs? Are my goals, are my ambitions, are my hopes, are they altogether different than the people who don't believe in Jesus? Friends, life is fleeting. God has given us this beautiful gift in the years that he's given us on this earth. And Paul is saying here, don't waste them. Invest in what's important. And that is knowing, loving, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And in spite of what the world might say about us, we have in, in our heavenly home a crown of glory that waits for us. And in this world, we have life and life to the fullest, no matter what the world may say. Let us pray. Oh God, we're so distracted by everything that's going on in our lives and we care more about what people think than what you think. And so, Lord, that you would take hold of our hearts, that you would lift our weeping eyes to behold you upon the cross and to know the forgiveness and our identity is in you and that your spirit that dwells within us, that he would speak to us and confirm in our hearts of your goodness and loving kindness that is to us no matter what is happening in our lives. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. Lord, we're poor, but you're rich. But Lord, we thank you most of all that your word to us, that we are your beloved children, is what matters most in the world. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.